Welcome to the Upgroup Meet the Masters podcast series. I'm Adrian Blair, and I'm talking to the winners of the 2021 Digital Masters Awards, giving you the chance to learn from the best operators in the world right now of high-growth digital businesses. My guest today is Robin Klein. Robin won a special Digital Masters Award in 2021 for services to the technology industry, and I should say to universal acclaim. Robin is general partner at Local Globe, a firm he founded nearly 20 years ago now together with his son, Saul. Whether it's Wise, Mind Candy, Farfetch, Love Film, Money Supermarket, it's hard to think of a European success story in tech that Robin hasn't been involved with at some stage. Robin, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Adrian. It's great to be here with you. Perhaps we can start by thinking about your operating career before you started Local Globe, before you became an investor. You were one of the pioneers of what's, I guess, now called digital transformation at the Arcadia Group in, in the 1990s. And if you think about, you know, many people working on what's now called digital transformation in large companies today... What do you think they could learn maybe from your experience at Arcadia all those years ago? Well, it's interesting that because it was it was a crazy period. Those who lived through it would remember what was called the dot-com bubble and burst. And prior to Arcadia, I built a company called the Innovations Group. It was a catalog business, which we turned into a digital business over time. We actually did the first e-commerce transaction in the UK, and that was in May 1995. And when Arcadia bought innovations uh, from us, internet sales and e-commerce sales were less than 1 million out of a total of uh, 70 million. Uh, So it was a minor part of the business. And what we tried to do at Arcadia was to introduce home shopping and internet shopping, e-commerce. So it was very much a sort of proselytizing job that the believers like myself had to do to persuade people that the internet was not some newfangled fad and was here to stay. What would I learn from that? You know, embrace the future, embrace technology. Technology is unstoppable with all its faults. It is a power for good. I mean, I think it's driven most of... uh, my career is this fundamental belief that many of society's challenges can be solved by technology, including climate change, for example. How did you get the folks at Arcadia, despite some of them seeing the internet as a threat, have such an impact there? Well, again, I suppose another thing that I learned was no matter how large an organization, the individual at the top drives the agenda. And at the time, John Warner was the chief executive, and he drove it and, you know, put uh, capital behind it and gave me the authority to launch all the brands online, whether they were, you know, Topshop, Dorothy Perkins. He made me uh, managing director of home shopping, but also of marketing for the group so that we could approach the market with a multi-channel approach. I would say that he was pretty visionary. And I think in order for large organizations to adopt what is a challenging technology at the time, you did need a strong leader who, who believed in all of that. If I think about your operating career, in a sense, it's still going on because a venture capital firm, Local Globe, it's just another kind of operations. It's another kind of business. What are the sort of special operating skills 
that it takes to run a VC firm successfully, would you say? Adrian, you're 100% right. And, you know, from the outside, I never thought of venture capital as being a business. I, you know, I thought of it as a bunch of really smart people making smart investments. But it's so much more than that because uh, Saul my son and my partner and I are both entrepreneurs by background and love building businesses. I suppose we approached Local Globe in that way. And what we said to ourselves is, look, we're building something to last. The things that we focus on, the same things that we would look for our companies to focus on. What is your point of differentiation? What is your brand about? What do you stand for? What's your mission and your purpose? Every company needs that. And I think that venture capital firms need exactly the same. Hiring the very best talent you can find. You know, what are the, the challenges that are different from a, building another company? I don't think they are. Is it somehow harder to stand out, though? You mentioned having a really distinctive purpose. If I think of, you know, a typical software company, let's say, you can have software that does a very specific thing that maybe other types of software don't do and, you know, make your mission all about whatever that thing is. Whereas VCs at a high level are all trying to do something similar, I guess, which is give the best return to their LPs and, you know, back great entrepreneurs or whatever. I think the purpose uh, that one has goes well beyond delivering returns to investors. And particularly if one aspires to take a leadership position in an industry, then I think one has to aspire to a greater purpose than just the financial returns. If I look at the founders that we back are fundamental and the support that we give them beyond the capital, the support of experience or our network, our involvement, in addition to the capital, makes them a very important stakeholder. Then, of course, our investors, our LPs, and, and their purpose. So who are they making money for? And this has become a bigger and bigger issue that is really important that we know and understand where our capital is coming from and the purpose to which that capital is being put. And then there's the wider community. I think that there are many parts of society that do look to technology to solve problems. Going back 20 years, it was all about shopping, entertainment, etc. Today, venture capital, startups, technology is, is focusing much more on climate, on health, on education, and taking much more responsibility for diversity and inclusion. How do you suggest a small company thinks about that because you know it's easy to think about you know alphabet or apple's responsibilities to society because they obviously play such a major role in it you're backing early stage businesses very very small businesses often how should those people think about their wider social impact i would say evaluate your own strengths and your own knowledge your own recognition of a problem that needs solving one of the strengths is that you're small, that you can move fast, and that if you have a technology which can solve a specific problem or enhance the lives of a number of people, in many ways, you're more likely to be able to do that than the large companies. If a company's mission kind of doesn't obviously relate to that, um, you know, if I think about the business that I've been running for the last 
three years at Dex. You know, we do small business accounting productivity solutions. Product we're best known for, like Scans Receipts. It's an app that you know uses machine learning to scan receipts. It's actually you know absolutely fantastic product, but it's not obviously solving world hunger. It's not obviously uh, something that's that's there to to benefit society at large. What would you say? For companies like that, how should they think about this whole area of social responsibility? Not everybody's brand needs to be built around saving the planet or you know, changing the world, but its contributions to small and medium-sized businesses is hugely important to our economy, to employment, etc. It is to have clarity of purpose. People understand what Local Globe does. So we have a strategy and we stick to our, our strategy, and that is to be the first institutional investor in a startup, a technology startup. We've been very clear about that you know, right from the beginning. So we've resisted strategy drift, which often happens with venture capital, because as you're successful, your funds get bigger and bigger and bigger. We resisted that. We said Local Globe will remain a seed fund, and we capped the size of our, of our fund. When we wanted to continue to back companies as they grow up, we created a new brand called Latitude, and Latitude has a very clear position in the market. It only does Series B+. Plus. Know what you stand for and have your customers know what you stand for. If I, if I think about the, the, the nature of really early stage VC, you must be looking at, I imagine, many, many hundreds of, of opportunities. You can't possibly do in-depth research on, on every single one of them. What sort of heuristics or do you use to decide which opportunities to ultimately back or which founders are the best founders to back? Adrian, that's the toughest question. There's no magic formula. There's no one-liner that I can give you. But we do have quite an unusual way of uh, making decisions. We talk about conviction. We get things wrong as often as we get things right. And the, the secret to a successful venture capital fund is to build a portfolio where at the time of making the investment, you have complete conviction that this company is going to go to the moon, it's going to become a huge company, but also with the understanding and the knowledge that at least half will just not, not make it. And at Seed, if, it, if it's half, you're doing pretty well, aren't you? Yes, we are doing very well. We About 70% go on to raise an A round, but that doesn't mean they'll go all the way. And to make a difference to a venture fund, certainly one of our size, companies, the outcome has to be pretty large. We talk about surfers and waves. If you study the market closely, you can spot the waves, whether the wave is cloud computing or artificial intelligence or you know Web3. Those are the waves. What we're looking for are the surfers who are going to ride those waves, the individuals, because they are the ones that make these things happen. So our job is as much assessment of individuals as it is of a business plan. And the chemistry between ourselves and that individual and our understanding about their motivation and their skill in executing the vision that they articulate. If I think about founders, like the most successful founders, they're so different from one another. It's really hard to say, what does Daniel Ek have in common with Sergey Brin? Are there common 
things. When you think of the most successful entrepreneurs, they all have quality eggs, or, or is it just complicated judgment calls on that? It is. They are all different. But I suppose if you were looking for common traits, you'd have to say determination, clarity of purpose, clarity of vision, the ability to learn rapidly. No founder knows everything they need to know. We do have a quite an unusual way of making our decisions in that we don't seek unanimity at our investment committee. We don't even seek a majority. We ask for conviction from the partners who have spent the time with the founder. And we we will back a partner who has that strong conviction, even if the rest of us are somewhat unsure. I see. So it's the person who spent the most time on it who needs to have conviction. Yeah. They need to lis- listen to the objections that others might have, answer the questions others might have, go back and rethink. But if they come back and say, I want to do this, I've heard what you guys all have to say, I believe in this individual. We back them all the way and we never look back. If you think of this similar sort of issues that you face with Latitude with your larger fund, is it ultimately a similar process and similar ways of making these judgments? Or does something change when you're talking later stage? Well, there's a lot more data at uh, Series B+, and the forecasts for the company are, are generally based on quite a few years of operating. So extrapolating from past few years is very helpful. But a part of it, you're still looking for uh, the team because at that stage, there's a team. You're still looking for the team to be capable of building a really large business. And the advantage that we have is uh, that uh, 70% of those companies are ones that we had previously backed at Local Globe. So we have you know, both the access, the insight, and the engagement uh, with those founders. We know them well. We've seen them go through the tough times, they hit the speed bumps, uh, the things that happen to, to startups. And we've seen how they've navigated their way through those. So we're in a very much stronger position to make you know, good judgments at that stage. Would you go even further than that and, I don't know, raise another fund one day to do series CDE. Have you been listening to our, <laughs> our LP reports or something, Adrian? That's exactly what we are doing. We're raising a, a third brand called Solar, which you, you've uh, very accurately spotted. The opportunity is to re- to stay with those companies uh, as they go through the scale-up phase and on to the IPO phase and beyond. And Last year, we had seven IPOs through our portfolio, and you know we still have strong conviction on all of those companies. So our intention is to uh, launch the solar fund, invest at late stage through the IPO, remain with the company into the uh, public markets. And that remains like multi-sector, does it? Not like vertical specific. Yeah, multi-sector, but uh, all in the innovation economy. Yeah. You've seen a few business cycles over the years. Um, If you think about what's happened in the last few months, you know, we're speaking here in 
March 2022, we've seen public market valuations really badly hit. We've obviously had the Russian invasion of Ukraine recently, a huge oil price shock, all kinds of stuff going on. But you've still got this wall of capital that VCs have raised over the last couple of years that needs to find places to go. Do you see much changing um, uh, right now or over the next few months in the world of venture and and how easy it is for, for businesses to raise capital? Or do you think the jury's still out on that? It would be great to get your thoughts. There's a definite change in sentiment and mood. The reality is good companies are still getting funded quite a rate. It'll be interesting to look when the numbers come out. Uh, raising capital is taking a little longer than it was. We've lived through an extended bull market. I suppose I'm pretty cautious and have been saying for a while, how long can this last? But on the other hand, you know, we are investing for the long term and the short term gyrations in the market generally don't make a difference. Long term investors are not holding back. There's a lot of dry powder, as it's called out there, looking to back great companies. The current situation, I think, is, uh, is a reset for the capital markets for sure. You know, the very late stage, you know, the pre IPO. In the window for the IPO is pretty much, you know, closed right now, I would say for a while. But the early stage stuff is still being uh, still being invested in. I also think we in these periods where you have some very sudden, significant change, as as we've seen, you know, with energy prices recently and and um, and other things in you know defense, cybersecurity. All of those present opportunities for new companies to be created, right? And it tends to be tech that comes in and responds to stuff like this quicker than probably any other part of the economy. 100%. I mean, the pandemic showed that very clearly. And then going back to 2008, you know, in the aftermath of the banking crisis, if I look at our 2008 vintage fund, it is one of our best funds. 2012 was better, but 2008 was a very, very strong fund indeed. If I think about the economy more broadly, I think you've been very influential in calling for public markets in the UK um, to be more receptive to high-growth tech. We had the government recently published the recommendations from Lord Hill to make it easier to list technology businesses, for example, with dual-class shares making markets more receptive to SPACs, reducing the free float requirement to 15%, this kind of thing. Do you think that's enough or are there other things you think we need to do to encourage listings in the UK? Very definitely. We've been proponents of of this for more than 10 years now, that the capital markets in the UK have really been barren when it comes to technology. And you only have to look at the performance of the FTSE over the last five, 10 years and compare that with NASDAQ or the S&P 500 to see you know, what woeful returns have been delivered. But I, I don't believe that the answer lies with government. I think government have done what they can, but I think it's kind of tinkering at the edges. The reality is we don't have sufficient institutional capital that really understands high-growth loss-making companies. I mean, loss-making companies, from an accounting point of view, it's quite interesting 
you know, what goes to make the loss in a company. Marketing, for example, goes to the PL and turns into a loss. Another way of looking at marketing is in investment in intangible asset, customers. And if customers have a lifetime value, then that's an intangible asset. I think some companies have tried to classify marketing as investment, but uh, uh, it didn't always go well. (laughs) And I'm not one for voodoo accounting, but I am one for analyzing companies in the way that high-growth investors analyze companies, which uses different metrics from the traditional institutional metrics like return on capital deployed or dividend yield, etc. That has its place in mature company. But if you're looking at a fast growth company that's growing at sort of 50-60% a year but isn't making money, that is not how you value a company like that. You value it by looking at the lifetime value, the cost of acquisition of those customers. Leave the PL where it is, but dig deeper and understand what it costs to build the software, what it costs to acquire a customer, what the lifetime value of the customer is. So what's wrong then in the UK? Because you've got, if I'm understanding you correctly, so you've got all this capital in the hands of pension funds who don't really get how to value tech businesses, whereas in the US, somehow they do get it. Why is that? I mean, I assume smart people trying to do a good job. What's wrong? It's frustrating because you're quite right. The city of London is packed with smart people and lots of capital. There's no history to fall back on. I think we're going to get there. And we can only get there by successful tech companies listing and and demonstrating their value over time. But at the same time, we also have to encourage our companies to list in a market where they don't find a lot of knowledgeable investors. And some of them are doing it. Let's face it, I should not tar all with the same brush. You've got brilliant long-term technology investors like Bailey Gifford, Railways Pension Fund, really do get this stuff. And I think more and more will. It's taking time. And I think they, they need to invest in the people and the analysts who have spent time understanding this uh, this whole market. I see. So, so so you don't think there's any kind of government intervention that fixes that? It's more just the firms themselves changing and bringing in the right expertise? I don't know enough about the rules that apply to the, to the UK pensions, but I, I do understand that there are a number of restrictions and uh, which, are people, which are placed on pension funds, which I think if those could be lifted would make a significant difference and bring more capital. I see. Venture capital as an asset class is still considered to be high risk, despite all the data that demonstrates the returns that, uh, that venture capital have been able to deliver. And pension funds, as examples, are naturally, you know, risk averse. But I think looking at the data would indicate that uh, is perhaps an old story. Yeah, I think it's so true. I mean, just because you back high risk companies doesn't mean that you are high risk um, if you've got a whole portfolio of them. Tell us about your experience uh, going into business with your son. I mean, I have a six-year-old son, so it's 
hard to imagine making that decision at this stage. What's that been like? How do you make that relationship work so successfully? It's a privilege, I have to say. It really is. We're, we're quite complementary. Our purpose has been very well aligned. We talk pretty much every day. Uh, you know, he runs the company. He's, if you like, the CEO. Some days I'm the chairman. Some days I'm the CFO. Some days I do all sorts of other jobs. <laughs> you know, we're a startup and a small business. So, As well as that, you've got your own podcast, haven't you? The uh, 2020 Vision podcast, which um, I think is quite different from uh, all the other podcasts out there. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, again, I mean, this was, I think this was uh, Saul's idea. It was in the year 2020. We were in the midst of a pandemic. Um, and uh, he came up with this idea that me interviewing people who had spent at least 20 years in the last century and 20 years in this century would be quite interesting to hear their uh, their stories and have them look back using 2020 vision and that's the play on 2020 the year and etc so I, I made a list of people that I thought would be really interesting in all walks of life uh, scientists uh, business people you know, we're releasing a, a podcast uh, every month where I just chat to them about their past, but also, you know, why they're still active at the ripe old age. And the oldest one is 89, uh, Sir Mark Weinberg. These people are, they're role models as far as I'm concerned, because, you know, I'm a mere 74. <laughs> And he's 89 and he, you know, he's still going strong, still interested in the world around. Yeah. I think the message I'm trying to give is, you know, don't write us off. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, Robin Klein, it's, it, it's, been, um, it's been so interesting listening to you and, and I appreciate you taking the time to, to share so much with, with the wider community. Th- thank you very much for, for being on the show. Thank you, Adrian. You're a really good interviewer. Oh, that's very generous. Thank you. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.